One of the problems, uh, I don't know if you've ever had this, but one of the problems I've had is being around smart people, often they work really hard to let you know how smart they are. You ever had this problem? There's an old story, I don't really know if it's true or not, but it's told about Albert Einstein. You remember Albert? It's told about Albert and his chauffeur. Uh, in his earlier years, he used to travel around the country giving a lecture, and the chauffeur was the one person that went with him every single time. And after a while, the chauffeur got tired of hearing the same lecture every night. He had heard it like a hundred times. And he finally said to Einstein, he said, you know, I've heard that lecture so many times. He said, I think I could give it. So Einstein said, well, why don't you do that? So they agreed to switch roles. And the next night, the chauffeur pretended to be Einstein, and Einstein dressed up like the chauffeur. The chauffeur went all the way through the lecture, went very well until it came to the end. They forgot about a question and answer session that Einstein always had at the end of his lecture. Somebody in the audience stood up and asked a very complex question about quantum physics. The chauffeur stood there kind of perplexed for a minute. And finally he said, you know what? He said, that question's so easy, I'm going to let my chauffeur who's sitting in the back handle that one. <laughs> it's interesting about smart people. They work really hard to let you know sometimes how smart they are. And last week we began a series about the kingdom of God by saying that the kingdom was the central message of Jesus. And the thing about Jesus is that he must have been the smartest and wisest man who ever walked the face of this earth. I mean, people who listened to him were astounded by his sheer brilliance of mind. When I was getting ready for this series, I came across a statement by a New Testament scholar by the name of Smith. And he writes, the parables alone provide material that neither theologian, excuse me, theologians nor philosophers can ever exhaust. It is a mark of Jesus' supreme genius. And we have a curious tendency to overlook Jesus' sheer intellectual stature. Jesus was brilliant. But maybe what's even more amazing about Jesus is he never showed off. He never said anything just to impress people with his brilliant mind. He just wanted people to learn how to live in the truth of the kingdom. So he thought a lot about, I'm sure, the method that he would use to teach people. How was he going to do it, and how was he going to teach people to engage them so that the simplest minds could understand it, and the greatest minds in the world could grasp it? You have to remember, in Jesus' day, a large number of people were illiterate. They could not read or write. So the primary method that Jesus chose for teaching was to tell stories. In fact, a third of his words in Scripture or what are called parables. In fact, Matthew 13 says that Jesus told the crowd all these things in parables. Without a parable, he told them nothing. There's about 40 of them in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And another 20 are what are called kind of mini parables or parabolic sayings. In fact, we get the word parable from a Greek word. It's a compound word, um, parabellion. It's taken from two words, bellion, which means to throw, and para, which means to, to uh, put alongside of, to, uh, to put alongside of something else. And the idea here is that Jesus would take an occurrence from everyday life, something that everybody in the crowd was familiar with, and he would throw it 
alongside a truth of the kingdom of God. And that way people could make the connection and they could learn. And he would spin out stories about lost sheep and corrupt judges and persistent widows, buried treasure, lazy employees, bad debts, noisy neighbors, and people would get the message and they just flocked to hear him tell these stories. For 2,000 years now, these parables, which lie at the heart of Jesus and the heart of Scripture, have stretched the greatest minds that this world has ever seen and they have fed the simplest minds. They have pierced people's hearts and they have really helped shape the souls of millions of people. So here's what we're going to do in the first part of this series. We are going to uncover and explore some of these principles that Jesus taught by way of parables. Today we're going to talk about the first one and it has to do with the decision that we all have to make when it comes to the kingdom of God. We all have an opportunity, if you will. We all get to select a certain box. We have a choice. And Jesus really wants us to understand this opportunity. And so when we understand it, according to him, it really should be a no-brainer. In fact, this is the way he told it in a parable one time. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Now in verse 44, it's the same point made in a very similar story. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Very similar type parable. Now look at this parable again. Jesus does a very interesting thing in this story. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which someone found. And the next thing this guy does after he finds it is Jesus says he goes and hides it. Now the reason he does this, of course, is that he doesn't want anybody else to find it. If you think about it, it's kind of a sneaky thing to do. But Jesus is not teaching here on how to be a sneaky person, okay? Generally, when Jesus tells a parable, he's making one point and the one point that he wants us to understand here is that this guy has found something of an estimable value. And he will never in a million years take the chance of letting it slip away. He will do anything. He will stop at nothing. His sole goal in life is to possess this one treasure. And Jesus says no wonder he feels this way when he finds out how much it's worth. Now here's the way that we have to start thinking about the kingdom of God. This is the way we have to start thinking about what could happen if we really did life the way Jesus taught. It is worth possessing more than anything in the world. I read a great newspaper story a few years ago. As far as I know, it's a true story. It happened in San Francisco. There was a guy who dealt in antiques and he went to an antique shop and it was mostly filled with junk. Uh, not really anything of value. Uh, but as he was looking around, uh, he got ready to leave and he looked over in the corner and he saw a cat on the floor drinking from a saucer. And he recognized that the saucer was in fact an ancient vase from the Ming Dynasty in China. I mean, its value was beyond even price. He knew immediately that he would never be able to buy this vase. He had not even close to the amount of money that he needed 
But he figured, you know, it's sitting on the floor. It's full of cat milk. So obviously the guy that owns this shop doesn't know what he has. So this guy gets a little crafty. He gets a little slick. He approaches the owner of the shop and he says, you know, that's a remarkable cat you have. I'd really like to own that cat. And the owner says, well, to be honest with you, it's really not much of a cat. It's just an ordinary cat. It doesn't have a pedigree, anything like that. Just a family cat. It's really not for sale. The guy says, nevertheless, I'd love to own that cat. I'll give you $250 for your cat. Owner place says, well, listen, it's just an old cat. It's not really worth anything. But if you want to pay $250 for it, go ahead. And the guy says, yeah, I'll pay $250. But, you know, I was thinking I have to have something to feed that cat from. So I'll throw in an extra 10 bucks if you give me the saucer there to go with it. The owner of the shop stopped for a minute and he said, oh, he said, I can never do that. He said, that saucer is in fact a vase from the Ming Dynasty in China. Its value is beyond price. He said, but it's the craziest thing. He said, ever since we started feeding the cat out of it, we sold 10 cats. That is the way Jesus says you have to start thinking about the kingdom of God. It is an object that is of value beyond price. And when people find it, they do anything to possess it. Let me be clear about this series. This is about what life would look like if we really capitalized on the chance to follow Jesus in his kingdom. It is the decision to follow Jesus closely. And I'll tell you, it will be in some respects the most difficult decision that many of us will ever make. And in light of this parable about the hidden treasure, I want us to look at a really kind of a signature teaching of Jesus in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. He's trying to explain to the crowds what it means to follow him. He says this, He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, the good news will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? What Jesus is saying, he says, listen, when you really understand what's at stake here, he said, this is a no-brainer. And Jesus is teaching on a very sharp, a very well-defined, a very conscious, intentional decision to become his follower. Now, let's talk about this for a second so we understand what it would look like if we follow Jesus. It's important to understand what he's saying to not misunderstand him. Let's think about what it means to make a deep decision. Let's do it this way. I'm going to run through some categories And I'm going to ask you, uh, just kind of at the end, to raise your hand if you would like to see one of these categories come about in your life. First of all, how many of you in this room would like to be in ideal physical condition, so much so that you could run a marathon? How many did you love? Yeah. How many of you would enjoy having your finances in perfect, prioritized order, having your checkbook perfectly balanced every single month? Yeah. How many of you would enjoy getting the perfect amount of sleep every night? Oh, wouldn't that be awesome? How about this? How about your house or apartment would be immaculately cleaned 
No dirty clothes, no dust accumulating under the bed, no dirty dishes in the sink. Okay? <laughs> and how many of you would like to have your mind stretched, your desk clean, your cartoon, your diet balanced, your breath freshened, and your teeth flossed on a regular basis? Right? Now here's the question. Think about it now. If that doesn't perfectly describe your life, why doesn't it? Now here's the short answer. The short answer is because there's other things that you and I want more. That is the answer. If you face it head on, if I face it head on, the reason that those things aren't true is that there's other things that I want more. Listen, the reason that some of us can't run a marathon is because we have never made the irrevocable decision that no matter what else happens in our life, we are going to run a marathon. Because I'll tell you something, there's people in this room sitting here right now who made that decision, and guess what? They just ran a marathon a few weeks ago. The reason we don't do it is because we've never really decided to do it. This is the kind of decision Jesus is talking about when he says, take up your cross, deny yourself. It's not just a statement about what I'd like to have happen, all other things being equal. It's not a statement about personal preferences. It's not a wish list or a dream list. It is an unconditional commitment to say, this is what's going to happen no matter what it takes. It's very interesting. The word to decide or the phrase to decide is from a Latin word. It has two roots to it, one of which means from, and the other one means to cut. And to decide something, think about this, means to cut yourself off from the alternatives. Does that make sense? You deny yourself, even though you feel like giving into it, you deny yourself, that's what it means to make a decision. A very wise guy years and years, centuries ago said, if you will here stop and ask yourself, if you're not as holy and loving as the early followers of Jesus were, your own heart will tell you that it is neither through ignorance nor inability, but purely because you never thoroughly intended it. You never came to that place where you seriously, intentionally, thoughtfully decided to orient your life around it no matter what. Now, let's stop here for a second. What happens about this point in this kind of talk is that people start feeling really guilty, right? Some of you already feel that. Some of you grew up with that, so you feel it all the time anyway, okay? I don't feel spiritual enough. Listen, this is not about guilt. That's not what Jesus is driving at here. Certain times in life, guilt is appropriate. This is not one of them. Jesus here is not trying to induce guilt on any of his followers. He's realistically trying to help us understand the nature of a decision. You've got to understand what's involved. Here's what the decision is. It's to follow Jesus. It's not to go to church. It's not to be a good person. It is to follow Jesus. Now in Jesus' day as a rabbi, it was to literally follow him around wherever he went. It was to emulate him. It was to be like the rabbi. In our day, the way that we need to think about it is this. My ultimate goal in life is to live as if Jesus were here in my place. What would it be like if Jesus were here? What kind of love, what kind of joy, what kind of peace, what kind of self-control? 
You know, during this series, Robbie and I are going to try to help us uncover key areas of our life where we face this kind of decision all the time. But today, the question is just this. Have you seriously, thoughtfully, intentionally counted the cost? And have you really, really, really made the decision? Jesus knows what he's talking about, so I'm going to orient my life around him. I'm going to give you a picture of what unconditional commitment looks like. This is pretty radical, so just kind of stay with me for a moment. This is from a goofy book called The Laszlo Letters. It was written by a guy that used to play Father Guido Serducci on Saturday Night Live. Some of you are too, too young in this room to remember when Saturday Night Live was actually funny. <laughs> but there was a guy who portrayed him. His name was Don Vo uh, Novello. And he would pose as kind of this crackpot, this kind of crazy guy. And his name was Laszlo Toth. And Laszlo would write letters to people, real, real people, politicians, celebrities, corporations. And he would write these crazy letters. This is one of them that he wrote to the people who manufacture M&M candy, the Mars Corporation. He wrote this back many, many years ago. He says, Dear Mr. President, with pain in my fingers, I type this letter. I have enjoyed your candy for years, with or without nuts, and always thought of you as the general motors of the candy world. But I had a shock, I'll say, this afternoon. I couldn't believe it when I looked down in my hand and saw the enclosed, deformed M&M. For as long as I could remember, I never saw anything but perfect M&Ms. What is this country coming to? It might just be a little piece of candy, but it means so, so much more. It is another sign that America the Beautiful is losing her status. What if that pack of M&Ms was exported? How would it look to foreigners? If the Russians saw it, they'd probably attack. It makes me ashamed to be an American. Watergate was bad enough, but this puts the cap on the bottle. I'm glad J. Edgar Hoover isn't alive to see this. We have to stop this type of thing from happening. It's just a piece of candy is a bad attitude for the leading country in the world to have. Find out, sir, who's responsible and fire them. Make an example. If you don't, a year from now, whole packs will look like they were made by the Jutes family and not by yours. <laughs> yours truly, Laszlo Toth. Enclosed, one deformed M&M. Now he wrote the letter to the Mars Corporation. And on July 29, 1974, he got a response from them. True story. Dear Mr. Toth, we regret that one of our M&Ms you recently received was imperfect. Our president has asked me to reply. Our products are processed and handled by the most modern methods known to the industry. We subject them to both mechanical and visual inspections and take precautions to assure that they leave our plant in perfect condition. In the case of the improperly molded product you received, our efforts at perfection apparently failed. We appreciate you bringing this matter to our attention. And I want you to know that our quality assurance staff will intensify its efforts to maintain perfection in our products. We are sending you some chocolate, which we hope will serve to restore your faith in our product. If this chocolate is damaged in the mail, please inform us so we can try again. Very truly yours. This crackpot sent a letter to Eminem to the Mars Corporation, and they sent him a whole package of new chocolate candy. 
See, this is a company that is unconditionally committed to the excellence of M&Ms. Listen, no exceptions, no substitutions, no obstructions. I mean, it's a bizarre commitment if you think about it, but nothing will stand in their way. Now, this is interesting. Some of you know I have a passing interest in psychology. It just fascinates me why people do the things that they do. Did you know that for psychological work, at least at one point, people, if they were going to reinforce behavior in people, do you know the number one food that they would give people to reward them? Do you know what it was? It was M&M's. It's very interesting. I've never really paid attention to an M&M before now. But I've got news for you. I stopped by Walgreens this morning and I bought this pack, which by the way was pretty expensive. <laughs> I'll tell you how confident I am in the Mars Corporation. I am confident that when I open this bag, every single M&M in this bag is going to be perfect. There will not be one M&M that will be deformed in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I'm willing to say to you that when I open this bag and I look at these M&Ms, that if one M&M is deformed, I will give every person in this room a bag of M&Ms. Is that a deal? Yeah. All right. Not one. I want you to look at this. You can't see it, but you just have to trust me. <laughs> Every single one of them with an M perfectly inscribed on the outside. Now this is amazing. I did this to show you what a commitment to excellence looks like. And because Robin made a bet with me that I could never eat an M&M during a message. <laughs> and I had to find some way to do it. Here's my point. <laughs> the people at Mars have an unconditional commitment. And they've become this great company because they won't allow a single deformed M&M to leave their plant. Now listen, don't beat yourself up over this. I'm just trying to help you think clearly about this. When it comes to following Jesus, do we even have half that commitment? Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Sometimes you're going to fail. Sometimes you've got flaws that are going to come through. That's not the point. The point is, have you made the decision that when you slip, when you fall, when you have flaws, that you will turn back toward him and say, my single decision in life was to follow Jesus as closely as I could. Here's the problem that we face. The problem is not that we will renounce our Christian faith. The problem is, is that we'll settle for a mediocre version of it. It's a crazy thing. We go to church week after week. We read the Bible year after year. We talk about going to heaven when we die. But in very concrete terms, a lot of people have never thought about the decision just to follow Jesus every day. Now, Jesus understood this. He says, so let me help you with it. Jesus says, there's a couple of things that you're going to have to cut yourself off from. And again, don't need to be, feel guilty, guilty about this. This is just reality. The first thing he says is, you've got to cut yourself off from excuses. Jesus tells this great story about excuse making. He says, 
uh, Jesus said to him, Someone gave a great dinner and they invited many people. At the time for the dinner, he went to his slave, to those who had been invited. And the slave was to say these words, Come, for everything is ready now. Now that statement, come, for everything is ready, is very important because it's referencing the kingdom of God. It's saying, the kingdom is now here. It's available. Everybody come on in. And they were being given the chance of a lifetime. They were being given the opportunity to live in the presence of God under his rule and reign in the kingdom. Now listen to what they say. But they all like began to make excuses. The first person said to him, I bought a piece of land. I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I got to go try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have just been married and therefore I cannot come. Now, I want you to think about the quality of these excuses. Let's just put ourselves in Jesus' audience shoes for a moment. Somebody throws a party, invites people to the party. First guy says, listen, I got to buy this piece of property, so I got I to go, go look at it. I just bought it. Now, some of you are in real estate. I don't know many people who buy property without going to look at it first. I mean, generally, people who buy real estate want to see it. The second guy, his excuse isn't much better. He said, I bought five yoke of oxen. If you're going to buy five yoke of oxen, which in our day would be like a car or a means of transportation or farm equipment, wouldn't you go try it out? Wouldn't you test drive it first? But then the third guy says it. He said, I've just been married. I can't make it. Now, this is a pretty legitimate rationale, friends. I mean, somebody invites you to a party on Sunday night and you say to them, hey, I'm getting married on Saturday night. I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. And then they get offended. I mean, this is a pretty legitimate sounding excuse. And the point I'm trying to make here is that Jesus is, he's raising the question in their mind. He's really trying to get them to think, what is your ultimate goal? In other words, if you want to be in the kingdom, if you want to become a follower, you have to say, I'm going to let nothing interfere because if there is anything that I will allow to interfere, it will interfere. Right? Like, what's your ultimate goal? Not, not what do you say is your ultimate goal, what really is your goal? I love what Stephen Brown says about this. A guy, he writes about this and he says, People fail in direct proportion to their willingness to accept socially acceptable excuses for failure. Isn't that great? He says, if you want to enter my kingdom, Jesus says, then you have to say, I'm going to make a decision. No matter what. No excuses. We have to cut ourselves off. Then he says, we have to cut ourselves off from this thing called double-mindedness. Now I'm going to try to take a crack at this one. You ever, have, ever notice in life how certain people, their whole life is about one thing? Every once in a while in the world, and it doesn't have to be a religious person, you see someone that has a singleness of purpose. I mean, they have a focus in life. So much so that if I said their name, you would immediately correlate what their purpose was. We're going to try this. Now, again, we don't know these people personally, so it's not totally fair. But just assuming that you do know them, at least their public persona, I want you to give me the word that describes this person, okay? Are you ready? Steven Spielberg. 
Good. Movies. How about this? Mark Zuckerberg. Facebook. The guy is known as the Facebook guy, right? How about this? Taylor Swift. Music. Be nice. Be nice. Okay. All right, here, one, one more. Okay. Tom Brady. Right, cheating. That's right. You got it. Good job. Okay. okay. No, football, of course. Listen, their whole lives are kind of oriented around one thing. There's a movie came back years ago. You young guys may not know this. Young people may not know it. It's a movie called City Slickers. Do you remember this movie? Billy Crystal was in this movie. Jack Palance was in this movie. And Billy Crystal plays this guy who's having kind of a midlife crisis, and he's, his, his life is messed up. It's not making sense to him. And uh, he goes out with his buddies uh, to this dude ranch or whatever, and he's riding horses and all. And Jack Palance, uh, who kind of runs things, He's out riding with him one day and he turns to him and he says something with great wisdom. He looks at Billy Crystal and he says, you want to know the secret of life? And Billy Crystal says, yeah, absolutely. Do you remember what Jack Palance says? He looks at him and he said, the secret of life is one thing, this. And Billy Crystal says, the secret of life is your finger? <laughs> and he says, no, the secret of life is one thing. It's to choose one thing and to build your life around one thing. And that begins to make so much sense to Billy Crystal because his life has been scattered. Career, family, excitement, anxiety, all these things pulling him. The scriptural term for this is double-mindedness. Remember the verse from James a person of divided loyalties is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. A writer in the 19th century put it like this. They say, purity of heart is to will one thing. And Jesus came to tell us what Jack Palance could not tell us, what that one thing was. And one day, Jesus looks at people, and they're so divided by stress and anxiety. He said, you're worried about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, where your security is going to come from. And then Jesus looks at him and he says, but if you will seek first the what? Kingdom of God. He tells them the one thing. If you will live in the presence of God under the rule and reign of God, that is the one thing. Now, I'm going to tell you a good piece of news, and we'll close with this. Because I know this kind of talk can be kind of overwhelming. When you make this decision, and I mean really make it on a daily basis, it is unbelievable how relieving it is to be delivered from double-mindedness. When you get off the fence and you finally say, yes, it is what my life is going to be about. It is a tremendous sense of relief. I'm going to tell you how I know this because have you ever gone to a restaurant with an indecisive person? It is miserable. Super salad. Ten minutes to decide. Thousand hour vinaigrette. Regular or decaf. Am I going to pay cash or credit? It's torture, friends. Some of you are going to experience it in about 20 minutes. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. 
It's double-mindedness. This is the way our lives work sometimes. We're pulled toward Jesus, but there's a habit we're not willing to deal with, so we are tossed back away. We're pulled toward Jesus, but there's a problem in our life that we won't face, so we're cast away. We're pulled toward Jesus, and we won't put our finances in order, so we kind of float away. The most miserable way in the world to live is a half-disciple of Jesus. And the temptation, and I'll tell you, this is the temptation in our culture, especially in America, is to believe that you cannot fully follow Jesus because there's other things you have to do. That is what our culture tries to get us to believe. But the truth is, is you don't have to do one thing that will keep you from following Jesus. The truth is, today you are unbelievably free. (laughs) I've told you this before, but we're going to end it this way today. It sounds odd. But one of the most important statements that you can learn in your life is just four little words. I don't have to. We're going to exercise the muscle today. If you don't take anything else away to lunch, I want you to take this phrase away. We're going to say it together. Ready? With some passion. Just these four words. Ready? I don't have to. The next time you see an ad on television that says you've got to buy something in order to be happy and fulfilled... You're going to say with great passion, I don't have to. The next time you feel yourself saying, you know, you got to keep rushing around. you got to be hurried all the time. you got to be in a frenzy all the time. you always got to be doing, doing, doing. You're going to say to yourself with great firmness, I don't When your spouse or roommate says, will you pick up your dirty clothes and help clean up around here some? <laughs> right? <laughs> No, that's not, the, that's not the example we're looking for, okay? Listen, there is virtually nothing that you have to do. You don't even have to keep your job. There's other things in this world you can do to survive. You don't have to live in the house you live in. You don't have to hurry around like a chicken with your head cut off all the time. We think we do, but we don't. See, your circumstances are no hindrance to following Jesus. So that just brings us to one question, and this is the question of the day. Have you made that single decision? Have you come face to face with the driving goal in your life? Have you decided, I'd like to live today as if Jesus were here in my place? Now again, go mess up many times. We're flawed people. But if you will turn back toward him and say, you know what? I made a decision. I made a commitment. You'll never drift into this, folks. I promise you, you'll never drift into it. If you try to drift into being a follower of Jesus, it will never happen. You will just become a busy, distracted, and unfocused person. And here's the good news. (laughs) You've been picked by him. Whether you've chosen him yet or not, He's chosen you. What he's done for you is he has opened up the door to the kingdom and he has said, come on in. In fact, we're going to remember what he did for us right now as we come to the table, as we share together. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful that we have found (laughs) the hidden treasure. We have found the pearl of great price. It's not hidden, it's, it's not 
some vague thing. It is available to us now in the 21st century, this very day. It is to live as if you were in our place under your rule and your reign and your lordship. Jesus, this is just not today about where we're going to go when we die. It's not just about whether our sins will be forgiven. That, that's certainly important, God. But really, Lord, what I ask today is that we make that irrevocable decision that as best we can, we're going to follow Jesus Christ. We're going to live in his kingdom. So today, I pray if there's anybody in this room that's been contemplating it, has been considering it, has seen the great treasure before them, but has never said, oh, I got to have that. That's worth it. That this will be their day. That with resolution, with firmness, with conviction, and with great, great humility, they will surrender and say, I'm choosing Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for opening the door to the kingdom and saying, whosoever will, come on in. We remember that now as Robbie comes to lead us in communion. In Jesus' name.